Welcome to the Mending Trauma Podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Amy Hoyt, and along with my sister, Lena Hoyt, a licensed marriage and family therapist, we want to help you recover from trauma, whether it's childhood trauma, complex trauma, PTSD, or any other trauma sustained from abuse or narcissistic relationships, we want to help you develop skills and ways that can help you to recover from the symptoms and the effects of trauma. We are so glad you're here. Let's dive in. Hi, Amy here. Are you feeling stuck or overwhelmed by things that pop up in your daily life? And perhaps these are because of past traumas or toxic stress. Have you tried traditional therapy and found that it wasn't enough? I know that was the case for me. That's why we developed the Whole Health Lab. Mini Trauma has put together a program that combines the latest research with proven methods to help you recover from trauma and move forward from these daily stressors and triggers. We use somatic therapy, EMDR, cognitive behavioral therapy, and internal family systems therapy. We use nervous system regulation, and many other tools so that we can combine the best methods that are identified in the research to help you recover without being completely overwhelmed. So you can work on trauma on your own pace, your own time, and still with the mentorship and support of a highly trained certified staff. That's us. No more waiting for appointments or sitting in traffic, driving to see a therapist. With our online program, The Whole Health Lab, you can access it from anywhere, anytime, even on an app. Visit mendingtrauma.com backslash whole health lab and learn more. Get your questions answered. We've got a frequently asked questions section and sign up so that you can have this life-changing program in your world today. Don't let your past hold you back any longer. Take control of your future and we can't wait to see you in The Whole Health Lab. Hi, everyone. Welcome back to another episode. Today, we thought we would go back to some of our beginnings, if you will. We haven't recorded an episode that is just a basic what is trauma for a couple of years, and we thought it would be really good to revisit it, especially since there's been a lot of new books and literature that have come out about trauma. So let's start with a basic definition. Lena, how do we define trauma? What is trauma? Well, we define trauma in our program as um, either a relational pattern or an event or a lack of attention that leads to a shift in your belief about yourself and your belief about the world. And that is the way that we conceptualize it in our program. But there are lots of other definitions. And do you have some that you have been looking at lately? Yeah, you know, I'm always interested when a new book comes out to see how the author defines trauma and how they think about trauma. And all of these are just adding to the conversation to help us understand trauma at a deeper level. One of the, um, of course, Bessel van der Kolk and um, Judith Herman are the two really godfathers and godmothers of trauma. And Bessel van der Kolk takes a more biological view of trauma where Dr. Herman takes a more social view of trauma and both are really important. But the definition that um, really captures me is that it's something that's unbearable and intolerable. And that comes from 
Vanderkolk. Another definition that I really like comes from um, Deb Dana's book. She has a book, Polyvagal Exercises for Safety and Connection. And she works really closely with Stephen Porges. And she talks about how trauma is what happens to a person where there is either too much too soon, too much for too long, or not enough for too long. And I really like that. It reminds me of Gabor Mate and his definition of trauma, which he talks about, it's also the good things that didn't happen to us. So we have bad things that happened to us, and we have good things that we didn't get. And those can both be trauma. So let's talk about how what types of trauma there are. I get a lot of questions about this. I'm sure you do as well. You know, we know about trauma and then people see words like complex trauma or CPTSD or PTSD. Let's kind of break it down and talk about the different types of trauma. Sure. I think that when I'm talking about trauma in this Um, arena, I'm not talking necessarily about a diagnosis of PTSD or complex PTSD. I'm talking about how throughout our lives, and particularly in our childhood, we can have experiences or lack of experiences. And oftentimes these are within relational patterns. And what those experiences do is they do not provide us with a way of being seen and heard. And they also can include um, parents who are doing the best they can, but maybe suffer from their own addictions or um, adult children of alcoholic who are raising you. The idea is that the trauma can be any incident that is overwhelming to your nervous system. So we can have single incident trauma, we can have relational trauma, we can have um, trauma that is medical. There's tons of different types of types of trauma. Yeah. And I think what we see a lot with our clients are people who are dealing with both childhood trauma and complex trauma. And to kind of let our listeners know, a lot of people who have complex trauma receive complex trauma in childhood. However, you can also have complex trauma in a sustained abusive relationship as an adult. Correct. Whether that relationship is interpersonal, at home, or whether it's at work. So complex trauma is a sustained pattern that lasts for a length of time, kind of going back to Deb Dana's definition, it's too much for too long or not enough for too long. And so we see a lot of complex trauma. And to kind of clarify, complex trauma is also called CPTSD. So those are synonymous. And I think that can get confusing if you're on social media and you're seeing things about CPTSD and complex trauma and childhood trauma. I think a lot of people are trying to figure out these definitions. So we've got all different types of trauma. Like you said, we've got single event. We do have PTSD, which um, is kind of where the field of trauma started, the modern field of trauma, Um, of course, mainly looking at people who had served in war. We have complex trauma. We have um, medical trauma. 
we have lots of different types of trauma, but at the core, they all are overwhelming our nervous system and really changing for the worse, if you will, in a negative way, the way we perceive ourselves and the world around us. So that's really the commonality. Teenage clients that I'm seeing now are having a lot of trauma in their friendships, Um, maybe even particularly after the pandemic, because it was so disruptive and dysregulating to social relationships, particularly amongst teens. And what they are dealing with is this perception that they don't have the right to have healthy boundaries that they don't, um, that they're not worthy of healthy friendships. And a lot of this happens in my clientele in junior high. And junior high is such a pivotal time for both girls and boys. But you also can have this trauma that occurs in your friendship relationships. And that can be very devastating. And it leads us to make all kinds of choices in our lives that are based on fear instead of um, being based on clarity and um, transparency and that sort of thing. Can you give us an example of how trauma might show up in a teenage friendship? What does that look like? Sure. So I have a couple of teenage clients. Um, One in particular in junior high had a couple of friends and as the seventh year turned into seventh grade, turned into eighth grade, the shift in these friends. So it was three, three girls, three kids together. And what ended up happening is two of the kids aligned with each other and they fo- formed a type of a, I don't know, cohort isn't quite the right word, but an alliance. And the result was that my friend, not my friend, <laughs> my um, kid that I worked with consistently not only left out, but when invited to things was ignored or was um, put down, made fun of, that sort of thing. And I can remember her at 13 saying to me, I, f- I think I've realized that even though these Girls have been my friends since I was eight years old. I need to have some distance from them. And so she on her own came up with this idea of how to like limit her exposure to these two friends. And then I have another kid who um, in eighth grade had a very good friend who started showing severe signs of mental illness at that time. And my client ended up feeling really responsible for her best friend. And no 13-year-old is equipped to deal with significant mental health issues in a friend. And as a result of the mental health issues, my client ended up rejected and blamed and accused. And um, it created a very uneven relationship that wasn't necessarily based on accuracy. So the mentally ill teen would accuse my client of certain things that didn't happen. And so it became very disruptive to my teen client and really impacted her ability to trust future friendships. 
I think these are great examples, very clear. And as you're speaking, I realize that I also see these same patterns in adult friendships. And so what we're talking about is um, probably yes. trauma in one or more of the lives of the people involved in these relationships that then gets brought into the friendship and um, those coping mechanisms you know, of trying to protect yourself and feel safe when you're hypervigilant are showing up as making alliances and, um, you know, obviously mental health issues where you're not necessarily tethered to facts and, and what's actually happening. Those are great examples. And I think that's really helpful for listeners um, to understand that we can have trauma that's easily identifiable. And then sometimes those trauma patterns get brought into other relationships and that gets really tricky. And even if um, the trauma isn't obvious. So um, as I worked with, with both of these clients over the years, it became apparent as they maintained some kind of contact with these friends of theirs, that there was a lot of trauma coming from these friends of theirs and the um, trauma within the home and the relationship environment and that kind of thing. So it was it was very fascinating to see, very tragic. Um, but working with my clients and seeing them heal and learn how to trust again has been very rewarding. I'm sure. So we've talked about how um, trauma can show up. What are some other clues for someone who's listening? about their own trauma. So signs of trauma and clues to know if they've had trauma. Well, we talk a lot in our program about um, these categories. And one of them is um, physical or somatic clues. And when you are taking a look at things and reflecting back, it's important that you know that trauma is one possible explanation for some of these things. Um, sometimes it can show up in migraines. Sometimes it can show up in um, gastrointestinal issues. So a lot of kids that I've worked with in the last few years have a lot of, oh, shoot, I can't remember what it's called. It's, IBS. Yes, thank you. Yeah, they have a lot of Yeah, IBS. it's very common with people with trauma to have IBS because the nervous system is constantly dysregulated and that that um, impairs digestion. Yes. Yep. And um, so you can have these real physiological symptoms and these real physiological issues. And um, some of them may be coming from trauma that's been stored in the body and hasn't been resolved. So those are some things you can look for. I think that's a great point that the, uh, we cannot drive this home enough that trauma is not just an issue of our mind and our brain, but it, it gets stored in our body. And because the nervous system is affected by our limbic brain through the polyvagal nerve, um, we know that trauma gets stored in the body. And that shows very real physical symptoms. The landmark ACEs study that was reproduced by the NIH in conjunction with Kaiser Permanente in 1996 and 1997, out of 17,000 people, um, they were able to discover that 
childhood trauma, adverse childhood events, directly led to an increase in heart attacks, um, stroke, and other very real physical ailments. So this is not, these are not psychosomatic. These are very real physical ailments. So when you do have those, as you talked about, that's a clue that it could be related to trauma. We also know that there are other mood and cognition symptoms of trauma. So we see a lot of anxiety related to past trauma. We see mood disorders such as depression related to past trauma. There is a growing body of doctors and therapists who believe that really at the heart of almost all mental illness is unresolved trauma. Now that hasn't been borne out in research yet, but it is a growing movement. And it's something I think that's interesting to watch and see where the field goes. Is our depression actually because of unresolved trauma or is it genetic? So it'll be really interesting to kind of see how that plays out. Um, we also see arousal and reactivity signs. And can you talk to us about some of those symptoms? What does that look like in a person? Sure. When, when we're looking at arousal and reactivity, what we're looking at is when people have a very large response to something that doesn't warrant the response. So the brain is perceiving a more situation than is actually occurring. So it can look like when um, somebody doesn't take off from the green light as fast as you'd like to, and you blow your top, or it can look like somebody cutting you off and you freak out. Um, it can look like you making a mistake and um, the response internally is so large that it triggers a shame cycle. And so the reactivity is about having these outside res outsized responses. And the arousal signs can be anything from um, problems with managing regular, even breathing, increased heart rate, uh, increased blood, blood pressure, these kinds of things can also show up in arousal. And again, what we're doing here is we're alerting listeners to lots of symptoms that you will get curious about. Does, you know, one symptom mean you have trauma? No. It means that it's something to get curious about and start to work with a professional to determine if it is due to trauma. Um, we also have avoidance symptoms, and avoidance can look like um, any sort of numbing behavior, addiction um, to really anything. It can be, you know, alcohol, drugs, porn, shopping, food, anything to avo avoid those sensations that come up. Because remember, trauma shows up in our everyday life as sensations and reactions, not necessarily cognitive clear memories. So avoidance is, I think, one of the most common set of symptoms. Are there other avoidance symptoms that you can think of besides addiction? Well, I think a lot about perfectionism and perfectionism. One of the um, symptoms of perfectionism is avoidance. And perfectionism oftentimes comes from an overwhelming experience in your earlier life where your brain subconsciously makes a decision that if only you were perfect, then this bad thing would not have happened to you. 
And that's particularly common when we have really dysfunctional family relationships. So perfectionism is another thing that I see. And um, great point. Yes. And then avoidance in general is something that um, kind of cycles in a lot of the clients that I see. So there's an intense amount of anxiety. There's the avoidance because of the anxiety. Then the anxiety rises. It can be a very exhausting cycle. And then our last set of symptoms are called intrusion symptoms. And these can come back as nightmares or as intrusive and ruminating thoughts and memories um, that are very hard to quiet. And intrusive symptoms are very, I think they are the most um, difficult. At least they have been in my life. Um, Are there other intrusive symptoms that you can think of? The the intrusion is is typically what I have noticed is typically in um, the thought process and having intrusive thoughts, including memories, keeps us trapped back in the trauma. And so the intrusive symptoms are very, very disturbing for most yeah. people. And, and that is a very difficult thing to deal with. Yeah. I would say out of all the symptoms, for me personally, the intrusions were the clearest sign that I had unresolved trauma because it was so clear, the nightmares and the flashbacks. were it, They were crystal clear to the point where it felt like I was back in that at that age. And so I would say with all of the other symptoms, it's like, okay, take a clue, see if you have trauma with intrusion. To me, it's super, it was super obvious. And I know that not everyone will have that experience, but there was no doubt whatsoever that something had happened to me um, because I was transported back to that moment in time, um, which was horrible and also necessary for my brain to help me start to put the pieces back together and start healing. So we've talked already about some examples of how trauma shows up in our everyday life, but let's move on to talk about how do we recover from this? Let's say we've got some symptoms, we're listening to this, we're like, oh my goodness, a lot of this is making sense. How do we recover from this? What does the research say? What's the most effective way to move into healing and recovery? Well, what the research supports is that unless we use the body in our healing journey, we will not fully resolve trauma. And that's why sometimes you'll hear things like you can't fully heal from trauma. You can just manage symptoms. And that is not accurate. You absolutely can heal from trauma, but not if your method of addressing it is talking about it over and over and over again. And if we do not include the body then we will be trapped and our nervous system will not be able to release the the, um, body memory. And there are some really specific things that can be helpful for that. So EMDR, which is eye movement desensitization and reprocessing, uses a, a myriad of approaches, including the body, as does internal family systems, And we also have seen a lot of powerful research on neurofeedback or biofeedback. And I love how the the research is moving more towards the 
awareness that we have body memory and cellular memory and that if we don't include that in our recovery, we're not going to have complete recovery. I think that's a really, really great point. And we are seeing in our program, um, we of course include EMDR and internal family systems, and we are just starting neurofeedback locally. Um, It's in beta still, but we are seeing truly miraculous results through all three of those methods. And um, I just, it gives me so much hope that people can recover They can heal. Not only are we living testaments that there is hope after trauma, but we're seeing it in the people we work with as well. Yes. And in our own journey, I think that's the most compelling thing for, um, for us is that we have used these things in our own journey and found them to be tremendously helpful to heal our trauma. Yeah, absolutely. I never thought I'd be able to sustain a relationship, um, ever. And, you know, I don't have a perfect marriage, but I have a very stable, loving marriage of 23 years. And that to me is proof that we can recover because there's no way I could have sustained a relationship previously without getting help. Right. Um, So we just want our listeners to know there is so much hope. I think that's what motivates I know it's what motivates me to get up every morning and do this work is I see people getting better. And um, as usual, we are just so grateful that you join us each week to listen and learn about trauma. And we hope you have a good week. Thanks for listening to this week's episode of the Mending Trauma Podcast. Lane and I are really grateful that you spend time with us each week. We know you have a choice and that time is currency. We would love if you would share this episode on social media and tag us so we can reshare. If you feel so inclined, go and give us a five-star review wherever you listen to pods so that we can get the word out and help more people. We know that we are all working hard on our mental health and we wish you great success this week in implementing these new skills. We'll check in next week.